I want to talk to you this morning about uh, the topic of death. That's kind of a downer way to begin, isn't it? But uh, that's the topic before us this morning. Adam and the reign of death. Death is a reality, of course, that all must come to grips with. It is inevitable. I can remember when uh, my children first came to grips with this reality some many years ago. We were living in Texas and somebody had uh, given us a bird. And uh, so uh, we had this bird in a cage. I'm not a fan of birds, by the way. Uh, perhaps you could tell that even by the way I refer to this creature. Uh, so anyway, we had this bird in a cage and... Um, they don't do much, you know. But we went, we went out one Sunday evening to uh, to a church, and uh, when we returned home, the bird was on the bottom of the cage, and its feet were, you know, kind of up in the air. And my kids thought it was sleeping, and so they wanted to wake it up. And and uh, of course, it wasn't sleeping. It was it was gone, dead. Stiff. So, so we had to explain to them death. And so that was their first uh, encounter at a young and tender age with the reality of death. Being a good, a good father, uh, we conducted a funeral service and a and, uh, little marker and everything, you know, in the field. Uh, but what really was uh, funny in a macabre sort of way, I suppose, <laughs> is, is that not too many months after, you know, establishing this um, bird graveyard, the bulldozers came into that field and, and leveled it all to build new housing. And uh, the kids were absolutely irate that the sacred bird burial ground <laughs> had been leveled. So anyway, death came to our home. And, uh, you know, I suppose that that's maybe a good way to, to begin that process, to talk and understand that inevitable reality of death. Open your Bibles to Romans 5, Romans chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 14 this morning. But before we do that, I want to place it in the larger context. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, you want to open it up to page 1129. For this uh, section of Scripture, we are preaching through the book of Romans. We've been after it now for quite some period of time. I think this is the number 41 or whatever in the song that never ends on the book of Romans. So uh, here we are. We've arrived in chapter 5. We're almost finished with this uh, very important section of the epistle on justification. And Paul has been, uh, been marshalling his arguments over uh, the uh, real or the um, the certainty, the assurance that can come to the believer that justification by faith alone indeed is God's uh, approved method, and it's it's the only method, and it is a method that will hold firm in the judgment day. That those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone to make them right before their Creator will have nothing to fear someday when the judgment comes. Now, this section, that's verses 1 through 11, and uh, that was um, 
Oh, uh, not too difficult, I suppose, or a few uh, little bit uh, complicated areas. But we're now entering into a far more complicated section of uh, chapter five. In fact, uh, most uh, most people agree, most commentators agree that this is uh, probably the most difficult portion of the whole book of Romans right here. So here we are. We've arrived at this book uh, or at this place in this book. We've been after it now for a year or more. And uh, you've got to put your thinking caps on me, with me this morning and uh, next time when we uh, handle the rest of this chapter. OK, because you've got to you've got to follow along. You've got to think through this section. And this is an important section. Paul is uh, is going to uh, muster his final argument, really, with regard to assurance of salvation. It is here in these these verses, 12 through 21, the end of the chapter. Now, the, the difficulties, the problems in this section are, are, uh, are legendary. One just relates to how this section fits into the context of what's going on. Paul begins it with, therefore, you see, and, and so there's the statement that, uh, that uh, refers back to that which has gone before. And there's quite a difference of opinion on how that ties together. We'll talk about that in a moment. But probably uh, beyond that and far more difficult than just the, the uh, syntactical way this section ties into what's gone before is the theological problems that arise out of verse 12. Verse 12 of Romans 5, Romans 5, 12, uh, is a very, um, on a surface, it's very easily understood. And, and, uh, and we're going to deal with it at a surface level, but we're going to look into it a little deeper as well. And that's where we're going to really encounter some very difficult uh, problems. Problems that, that arise because we are really looking into something that is so profound and so mysterious that it that it uh, escapes the human mind to really get itself all the way around. And so we can we're going to talk about it. But we're if you're a person who likes it all nailed down tight, that you've got all the answers to all your questions, then you're going to walk away somewhat dissatisfied. And I can commend you to uh, a legion of uh, material that you can read on your own and continue to pursue this. There are essentially two uh, well-established and long-standing conflicting interpretations of exactly what Paul means in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. I will explain them to you a little bit later here, I hope. <clears throat> and it's not that the reason there are two uh, differences of opinion has really not so much to do with the uh, Greek language underneath it. That's not so difficult. The, um, the problem really lies in the... The desire, I think, of, of uh, virtually all people to create a theological system, a grid into which they can uh, place their understanding of the Bible and get their questions answered. And the Bible is not a theology textbook. And uh, it certainly teaches theology because it teaches about God. And that is the subject of theology. But there are many questions that would arise in our minds with regard to theology that we perhaps would like answered that God just flat doesn't answer. And uh, this uh, section raises many of those. These conflicting, these two conflicting understandings of verse 12 of Romans 5 arise, I think, uh, certainly in part by a, a great desire on the part of people to to create this coherent and logical theological system into which they can place everything and get all their ducks in a row, all their pigs in the in the right holes. And um, this Section doesn't really lend itself fully to that. OK, there are there are there is mystery here. We're going to be looking at mystery and something of a very profound nature. Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine 
says the secret things belong to the Lord, our God. And that's probably a good thing to keep in the back of your mind as you're looking at this section of Scripture together. And that is, if you don't have all your questions answered, (coughs) perhaps there is no answer for some of those questions. And you will just have to wait until you get to glory when uh, you will probably not have an answer to your question, but you just won't care anymore. Okay. That's, by the way, what I think happens in glory is not that you'll go up to Jesus and give him a list of questions. I think when you get to glory, you won't have any lists. You won't have any questions because you won't care. All right. You will just be in the presence of your savior and that will be enough for you. So here it is in a, in a big and overall way. And this is not difficult to understand. OK, so I'm going to give it to you in a big overall look at verses 12 through 21. And in that sense, I think it's, it's quite, quite simple, quite clear. Here it is. Paul teaches in this section, verses 12 through 21, that all people stand in relationship to one of two people. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. Okay, and the actions of those two people determine your, (coughs) excuse me, eternal destiny. Okay, there are two people and the actions of those two people determine the eternal destiny of not just of a multitude of people who are related to them. And so what Paul is going to do as he unfolds this passage is he's going to speak first about Adam's effect upon humanity. And then he is going to use that as an analogy to speak upon the speak about the effect of Christ upon humanity. And he is going to argue from that which is is of more common knowledge, more easily understood to that which is of a greater uh, uh, um, and more profound nature. Okay, now (coughs) we understand the effect of Adam upon us at the very core of who we are. Okay, we understand death. We don't understand all there is to know about death, but we do understand that death is a reality. Isn't that true? And that it is coming to every one of us and there is no escape from it. We also understand uh, to a certain degree the effect of sin upon us. Okay, we don't all understand everything about it, but we do understand a, a fair amount of sin, and we understand it by personal experience, because we're sinners. And like a like a goldfish living in the bowl, <coughs> we don't understand all there is. The goldfish is wet, and he doesn't know that he's wet. Okay, and so we're sinners, and to a, some degree, we don't understand entirely how sinful we really are, but we do understand a fair amount about sin. And so Paul is going to move from that which we know to speak of that which is greater and more profound. And in fact, he uses the terminology much more several times in this section to bridge from that which is true about Adam to that which is true about Christ. The net result of him doing this is he's going to give us the final and definitive reason why those who have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ are absolutely saved for sure. Okay, so that's. The basic overview of this text, (coughs) excuse me, structurally, verses 12 through 14, we have the introduction of the two persons, Adam and Christ. Christ is is uh, spoken of at the end of verse 14. The majority of this section that we're going to look at this morning speaks about Adam. I'm calling it Adam and the reign of death. Verses 15 through 17 is a contrast between Adam and Christ. And then verse 18 through 21 is a comparison between Adam and Christ. Verse 18 is actually picks up the statement that Paul begins in verse 12. In verse 12, Paul begins the comparison, but he breaks it off. 
In fact, you probably see that in your Bible, the end of verse 12, there's probably a a dash or a hyphen or something at the end of the verse, which should indicate to you or does indicate to you that there is a broken thought going on here. Paul starts to make his comparison and then he has said something so deep, so profound that he has to stop and insert some parenthetical information about it, which he will do in verses 13 through 17. And then verse 18, he returns to it again and finishes the comparison. Okay, so structurally, that's how it all goes together. Let me read it for you. Romans 5, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so... Through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. And the law came in that the transgression might increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So this morning, we don't have time to unpack all of this, so we're just going to begin in verses 12 through 14 and look at the first part, okay, the, the basis of the analogy. I'm calling it Christ and the reign of death. And as we look at verses 12 through 14, there are three mysterious aspects of the reign of death that we're going to look at here this morning. And the reason we want to do that is so that we can begin to understand how the actions of one person can affect the destiny of so many others. Okay, that's the underlying question. That I, that I want to keep in the forefront of your mind is how do the actions of one affect the destiny of so many others? So first aspect, the beginning of verse 12 is the rise of the reign of death. Therefore, therefore, just as through sin or just as through one man, sin entered into the world. OK, let's just stop right there and look at that. Therefore, when you see therefore in the scriptures, you have to ask yourself, why is it therefore? OK. So it is to push you back into something that has been said before. I told you that syntactically this is difficult. What is what is the conclusion Paul is trying to draw from what has gone on before? I think the answer here is in verses 9 and 10. In verses 9 and 10, Paul talks about how the death of Christ, the death of Jesus Christ, secures the justification and the reconciliation of a group of people or a multitude of people actually called believers. Okay, and so I think the question that that he's now addressing as he finishes out this section of the book is how can the action of one person 
permanently affect the eternal destiny of, of multitudes of others? How does one act on behalf of many? Okay, I think that's the question. And I think that's exactly what it is that he is going to answer for us. And so he's going to do that by arguing from that which we have some understanding of to that which we had prior to this no understanding of. Okay, he's going to argue from the effect of Adam upon humanity and use that as a basis to understand the effect of Christ upon a new humanity. Okay, so he's going to argue from the reign or Adam and the reign of death to Jesus Christ and the reign of life. And as we begin to reflect together on the seriousness and the pervasiveness of the reign of death, we will begin to have some some level of understanding of the amazing power and glory of the reign of life. Okay, so we're going to understand something about what it means to have life in Christ by reflecting on what it means to be dead in Adam. That's where we're going. Okay, it's going to take today and another one. So Paul begins here, he says, therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world. Now, immediately your your mind goes back to Genesis, right? Should take us back to Genesis chapter two, chapter three, where Paul uh, is reflecting upon what we are given under inspiration through Moses about what happened way back in the beginning of the race. Paul says that through Adam, sin entered into the world. Now, notice it's singular sin, not plural sins. Okay, he's not speaking about a repeated transgression. He's speaking about one single act of rebellion, sin. And that single act of rebellion produced tragic consequences for both Adam and for his offspring, for his posterity. Now, you'll remember that uh, Satan made his appeal initially to Eve there in, in Genesis 3. But Eve is never charged uh, with the one who bears the responsibility of that. Adam is the one who is charged with this. And the reason he's charged with this, I, I believe, is pretty straightforward. He is responsible for the entrance of sin into the world because he is the first human being. Adam is the first human being. In fact, that's what his name means. His name means man or human Okay, so Adam was first. And there's also in uh, in Genesis 2 and 3, there's enough information there, I think, to understand that in some sense, uh, Adam is is also appointed representative to the race or, or of the race. So Adam is the first human created and he is in some sense representative of all other humans. Okay, all humanity. We are a race because we all come from one. Right. Even Eve was taken from Adam. Angels are not a race because they are not all from one. They are independently created. OK, so it is the race of men that's being talked about here. And so when Adam rebelled and violated God's explicit command not to eat the fruit, OK, or to eat from the tree, sin entered into the world. That's what Paul is saying. Verse He's just reminding us of something that should be very, very familiar to us through our reading of the scriptures. And then notice, he says, and uh, next part of verse 12, and death through sin. Sin entered into through the one act of rebellion and then death followed closely behind. It's as if sin opened the door and death scooted in behind. Okay, death entered into the house and moved from room to room throughout that house. Now, 
Death is not natural. We just need to say that. Okay? Death is universally common, but death is not natural. We were not intended to die. We were not made to die. It is the most unnatural thing imaginable, even though it is the common fate of all of us. Okay? Death involves separation. Death involves separation. Physical death is the separation of body and soul. Spiritual death is a separation as well, or a cutting off, if you will, of the, of the person's spirit from relationship to his creator. Okay? So death is always involving separation. And in this passage, verses 12 through 21, the death being spoken of here is physical death. Okay? It's talking about physical death. That's why I said it's something that everyone understands. And Paul will work from the, the analogy of physical death and he will speak about spiritual life. Okay? So it is not, it doesn't mean that spiritual death is not somewhere, you know, part of this, but, but the analogy is physical death. You see that in verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. Okay? So we're talking here about physical death and what Paul says is that therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world and Following close to the heels behind sin was death, physical death, physical death. Now, pause here for a minute. Some people question the historicity of Adam. They question whether Adam was real. Was he really a person? Did he really exist? Was he the first human or is this just Bible lore? It is absolutely critical that we understand that Adam did exist and that he was the first human being. In fact, if Adam, if, if, if there's no historical reality to Adam, then Paul's whole argument here falls on its face. If Adam is not the first man, if sin and death did not enter into the world through him, then the whole basis of the parallel that Paul is making here evaporates. And with it, the, uh, the doctrine of the justification by faith alone collapses. Okay, so the historicity of Adam is an important thing. We cannot uh, lightly turn away from that. So, the rise of death. Next, Paul speaks of the reach of death. Same verse. The reach of death. Okay? And so death spread to all men. Do you see it? And so death spread to all men. Sin brought death into the world, and so death now spread to all men. Adam is the first created person, first created human, and the consequence of his sin was the entrance of death into the world. We were all born out of Adam, and somehow this dreadful disease called sin and death now affects every single one of us. All right? So death spread to the whole world. Every succeeding generation drawn from Adam is dead or dying. Let's put it that way. He's going to die, right? You don't have to go very far in the book of Genesis. In fact, you arrive at Genesis chapter 5 and you arrive at what Bible commentators call the graveyard of the book of Genesis. There is a repeated refrain in Genesis chapter 5 where it's listing a genealogy. You remember this? And it, and it gives those extraordinary ages that the patriarchs lived. And then it says at the end of each one that he begot so-and-so, and then what? Then he died. Okay? Then he died. 
And so it's, it's like, a, like a hammering refrain, like a bell that is tolling over and over and over again. Death, 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 death. Death has spread to all men, Paul says. All will die. You might illustrate this, uh, perhaps, out of the, uh, the 14th century of European history. There in the 14th century, in a the period of 1347 to 1351, Europe was overcome with what was known as Black Death. Black Death or the bubonic plague. Historians theorize that uh, this plague was actually carried by, uh, um, by fleas on the backs of rats that were brought from China in tr- along trade, along the Silken Trade Route into Europe, and this new kind of rat with this new kind of flea carrying this bubonic plague spread like wildfire over Europe, okay? And decimated in that relatively short period of time over one-third of the population of Europe. The plague spread to all was kind of the idea. No one was unaffected by it. There wasn't a household that was unaffected by this. Paul says in a greater way here, death spreads to all men. Death spreads to all. How? How did it happen? How does death spread to all men? How does Adam's sin and Adam's death spread to all people? That's the big question. Okay, that's the big question. And so Paul is going to answer that question for us in the balance of what we're going to look at this morning. This little phrase at the end of verse 12, which I told you is just so loaded. This little phrase at the end of verse 12 and then verses 13 and 14 which relate back to it. That takes us to the reason for the reign of death. This is the meat of it. Now, there can be no doubt. Here it is. It says, because all sinned. Okay? That's your answer. Why or how did death spread to all humanity? Why is it that you're going to die someday? Is because, Paul says, all sinned. Now, if you're satisfied with that, you can go home. Okay? But most people are, are looking for something a little more than that. Okay. Now, there's no doubt that this is the reason that Paul is saying. And what he's saying is that all sinned. Do you see it? All sinned. He uses an aorist tense verb here, which just indicates that at one point in time, all men sinned. He's indicating that at a point in time, all of us sinned. And thus, death spread to us because we all sinned. Death is a consequence of sin. And so all men die because all men sinned somehow in Adam. Okay? That reality is repeated five times in this text. You cannot miss it. Verse 15, Paul says, By the transgression of the one, the many died. Verse 16, the judgment arose from one transgression. Verse 17, by the transgression of the one, death reigned. Verse 18, through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Verse 19, through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So when Paul says, because all sinned, he's not talking about the individual acts of unrighteousness that every single one of us have committed and continue to commit day to day. Okay, That is not the reason for your death. 
The reason for your death, according to the Apostle Paul, is because at some point in time you sinned. You sinned. And as I just read, that point in time is somehow inextricably bound in Adam, your great ancestor. Okay? So that in some way, Adam's sin is your sin. Adam's death becomes your death. Now, perhaps Paul realizes the significance of what he's just said because he breaks off his thought here. And he introduces verses 13 and 14, and that is a... He introduces them as sort of a parenthesis. And I think the reason he does it is to provide the evidence for the statement of which he's just made, the evidence that all people sin in Adam. Okay? He's going to, he's going to flesh that out. He's going to fill that out. He's going, to, he's going to demonstrate the reality of what he has just said. And he's going to prove that physical death, which is the consequence of sin, came to all people including people who had never broken the law of God. So let's watch how he does it. Verses 13 and 14. You ready? For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. Paul wants to demonstrate for us here that the reason people physically die is not because of their own personal sin. It is not because of something that you have done. Yesterday, a year ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Okay, it is because of Adam's sin. It is because of something he did. It is because of something he did. Physical death is your inheritance from him. Okay, you may thank him for it when you see him in heaven. Okay, that is the reason why all people die, because Adam sinned. Now, how does Paul demonstrate this in these two verses, 13 and 14? Follow with me as we unpack his logic here. First, the beginning part of verse 13, Paul says, for until the law, sin was in the world. So Paul just makes makes an observation and said that that sin existed in the world before the giving of the Mosaic law. Okay. So Paul is is observing personal sin is still was prevalent in the world prior to the giving of the law. Okay, prior to the giving of Moses' law, the law at Sinai, personal sin still was operating in the world. And we would agree with that, wouldn't we? You just have to read through the Old Testament. You can see that. Then he goes on to the next statement. He said, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Sin is not imputed. Sin is not counted. Sin is not reckoned. Okay, when there is no law, a very simple principle that you would readily understand and agree with when there is no written law, no explicit list of commands, then there can be no strict accounting of points of violation. All right. It's as simple as that. You cannot be legally guilty for some for violating a law that doesn't exist. Wouldn't you agree with that? If there is no law, you cannot be legally guilty of violating it. It's as simple as that. And so what he says here, verse 13, sin is really in the world. It's operating, okay, until Moses. But it is not counted against anybody when there is no law because there was no law. It's not counted against them. They're not guilty. They didn't break anything. They didn't break the law because the law didn't exist. Yet, 
You see that verse 14? Nevertheless, everybody from Adam to Moses still died. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. Everybody continued to bear the consequences of sin. The consequence of sin is what? Death. Physical death. People continued to die even though there was no legal uh, guilt attached to them for breaking the law of God. That means that their own law breaking, which doesn't exist, can't be the reason for their death. Okay? They didn't die because they did anything. People still die. All right? Therefore, people still die. But it's not because they broke the law of Moses. And death only comes as a result of lawbreaking. So the obvious conclusion is that they must be lawbreakers if they died. Isn't that true? Death is the consequence for breaking the law. All right? They haven't broken the law in, the, in their persons that they're, you know, because there was no law, yet they still die. Therefore, they are lawbreakers. How? Huh. I'm glad I'm seeing a few puzzled faces out here. This is good. Okay? That means that you are, you are processing what he is saying. Okay? Death is a result of lawbreaking? Yes? We're going to review the bidding here. Death is a result of lawbreaking. Yes. Okay? There was no law in the world from Abraham until, or Adam until Moses. Therefore, you are not, they were not guilty, those who died were not guilty of breaking any specific laws. Yes? But they still died. Yes? Therefore, they are lawbreakers. How? See, now you arrive at the at the reason why this is such a conundrum. Okay? They're still lawbreakers. All right, now. All right, here we go. Let's deal with this quickly. Some people might object to this line of logic. All right, some might object to this, and they might say, well, prior to the Mosaic, uh, giving of the Mosaic Law, there were commands given to the people. Like Noah had commands, right? Abraham had commands. Paul earlier says, Romans 1.32, that they, people did these things and they knew the law of God, that those who do them are worthy of death. Romans 2.15 says they have the law of God written on their own hearts. Okay, so there was some law breaking going on. And so maybe that's the reason they died. Paul will answer that objection here in the rest of verse 14. You ready? Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. What does he mean by that? Yes. There were other kinds of law in the world prior to the Mosaic law. And yes, people broke them, but that was not or doesn't invalidate Paul's argument. And it doesn't invalidate it for two reasons. Okay? So here are two reasons. First, the law that Adam broke was an explicit regulation with an attached explicit death penalty. Okay, that's very important. An explicit regulation with an explicit death penalty attached to it. You shall not eat, for in the day you eat from it, you shall surely die. Genesis 2.17 Prior to the giving of the Mosaic Law, the world did not have such explicit written formulations. Okay? There wasn't that explicit command with the explicit death penalty attached until the giving of the Mosaic Law. And so there were other laws out there, but they were not this law. That kind of law, the law Adam received. 
And perhaps even more compelling is the death of infants. Is the death of infants. Between Adam and Moses, many, many infants died. Wouldn't that be true? Many, many infants died. Yet they could not read any written law, should it to have existed. They couldn't read the law on their hearts. They couldn't even disobey it. Yet they died. Yet they died. Why? Why do babies die? Maybe we can just ask it that way. Why do babies die? The answer has to be that they broke the law. What law? The law given to Adam. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Somehow, they sinned in Adam. And the death penalty attached to them. Now, I can sense the questions are still rolling around out there. Okay, in what sense, in what sense can all humanity be said to have sinned in Adam? In what sense can we say that? And maybe a related question, is it fair? Let's raise that one first, okay? Is it fair for billions to suffer because of the sin of one? Is that fair? Let me answer it two ways. First, God is God. Okay? God is God. What does that mean? That means that God is sovereign over His creation and He has created this world and He created the laws by which this world is run. And so God has set the world up this way. So is it fair from God's point of view? Answer? Yes. But is it fair from our point of view? Well, I'll go ahead and say no, it's not fair. It's not fair. But let me just ask you a related question. Is it fair for billions of people to be saved by a righteousness that's not their own? Is that fair? But that one doesn't seem to bother us so much, does it? We like that side of the equation. It's the other side that troubles us a little. Now, the answer to this underlying question is, in what sense can all of humanity being said to have sinned in Adam is traditionally answered in one of two ways. Okay? There are traditionally one of two answers given to this. They both have their associated strengths and weaknesses. I'm just going to buzz through them really quick. Okay? Just listen. And if you're interested in exploring this more, there is a, there is a mountain of books you can read. Okay? The first is what's called seminal headship. Okay, seminal headship, S-E-M-I-N-A-L, seminal headship, and what is commonly associated with it, which is called traducianism. You'll like that one. Traducianism, T-R-A-D-U-C-I-A-N-I-S-M, in case you want to look it up. Okay, seminal headship and traducianism. What does that mean? It means simply this. It says that there is a biological and genealogical connection a natural or a seminal union between Adam and his posterity, such that when Adam sinned, all the rest of humanity somehow was in his loins and participated in that sin. Okay? All sinned. Romans 12. This view is sometimes called original sin or inherited depravity. Okay? 
You can just mark this down. I'm not going to go there. I don't have time. Hebrews 7, verses 9 and 10. There is a scriptural statement about Levi paying tithes to Melchizedek while still in the loins of Abraham. Okay? That's something to think about. And in Genesis chapter 5, verse 3, it says, Adam produced a son in his own likeness. Now, traditionism, I guess I didn't define that, did I? Traditionism says that, uh, that physical parents, man and woman, together produce their children body and soul. They produce a complete person, body and soul. Okay, that's what traditionism says. Okay, Genesis 5.3 would be a verse that is cited in support of that. Okay? Maybe I can illustrate this for you. If you don't like this one, you can blame my son. He came up with it. Okay, here it is. I'm Scottish. Okay? Scotland is a place, not a blood. I am Scottish because I was in Scotland through my ancestors. I liked it. Okay? You can just think on it. If, it. if it illustrates it, great. If it doesn't, throw it away. Okay? The point of it is, is that when it says, verse 12, look at it again, because all sinned, what it is saying is that you were there and you participated. You were there and you participated. Now, are there problems with this view? You bet. Okay, there are problems. Question, how can one act before one is? Okay, that's a problem. How does one act before one is? Second problem, what about Eve? What about Eve? Did she have an inherited nature? How did she? Why did she die? When did she? Okay. You think about that one. Others say, well, doesn't this really, doesn't this disrupt the analogy that Paul is making here in the text? That our righteousness in Christ, if we, if we understand it this way, that our righteousness in Christ is now something we physically possess rather than something that is legally imputed to us. Okay. So there are problems with this view, the seminal view. And that has led many, many others to what is called a federal or representative headship. Okay, you might have heard this before, federal headship, representative headship, and the associated uh, theory of creationism. Creationism. Creationism, in, in, a, in a nutshell, just means that a person's soul does not come from his parents, but is a direct creation of God. Okay? And then united with the body. So, federalism, or representative headship, it says this. Adam was the divinely appointed representative person, and he stood the test for all of his posterity. His act is considered their act. His sin, their sin. Okay? He is your representative. Just like today in Washington, you have representatives. Their act is your act. Well, anyway. Supposed to be. Okay? We throw the bum out. But anyway. That's what representative means. Adam stood in for you. What he did is, is now legally your activity, your action. Okay, so when he sinned, you sinned legally. This seems to preserve the analogy really well between Adam and Christ. And it makes Christ the second Adam, which Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 45, that he is the second Adam. Okay, so there's, there's something really strong here to commend this. But there are problems. Okay? Problems such as when is sin then imputed to an individual? When is it actually imputed to individuals? If it was just representatively done there, when does it become my sin? 
individually? When does my soul become corrupted? Is it at conception? Is it before the foundation of the world? Does God have a pool of corrupted souls that he just takes out of and adds to each body? It's a real problem. Furthermore, doesn't it make the statement that says all sin to mean something like all are now regarded and treated as if they had sinned? That's different language than saying all sinned. There is no specific data anywhere in the scripture that says Adam stood before God to represent all of humanity. Okay, that is an that is an implication at best. There is no explicit statement that says that there is no covenant anywhere in the Bible that we can find that says that God entered into covenant with Adam with regard to this issue. And then finally, if our souls are not generated by our parents, then how come there is no moment in time when a soul is without sin? Does God create a soul and then immediately corrupt it somehow? And if so, that sort of doesn't sound very good. So there are problems. Okay? Problems with the seminal headship view, problems with the federal headship view. And maybe it's some combination view of the two. I don't know. But in all of this, and we've just gone about as deep as we're going to go into the, into the deep end of the pool, okay? We're coming back up. Here's the important thing. Somehow, in some mysterious way, all of humanity is tied to Adam. That's Paul's argument. And all of humanity suffers physical death, not because of personal transgression of any known law, but because of what Adam did. And that reality provides the analogy that Paul will use to speak about what Christ has done for us. Okay? You see at the end of verse 14, who is a type, tupas, of him who was to come. All right? He is the type. Adam is the figure of Christ in this one specific aspect. As Adam's one sin brought death into the world, even so, even though uh, the, the world had no personal sin, so through Christ, one of active obedience, righteousness is brought for those who are in him, even though they have no personal righteousness of their own. Okay? 1 Corinthians 15, 21, 22. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Remember I said at the beginning, we're related to one or the other. All right, what did we take away this morning? What's the takeaway? Here it is. The deepest problem with the human race is not that everybody commits various kinds of sin. That is not your biggest problem. It is a real problem. And every one of us have certainly committed enough personal transgression to merit our condemnation. But the problem with us is much deeper than that. It is much more profound than that. Okay? Somehow, in some way, behind all of our sin and all of our depravity lies Adam. He's back there somehow. And we are connected to him. And his sin is our sin. His guilt, our guilt. The reason you are going to die someday is because of what happened back there. One ruined the many. One ruined the many. Next week, Paul will build on that analogy. And he will 
bridge from that reality to show us that what was ruined in Adam is resurrected in Christ. That's what you can take away from this. As sure as it is that you're going to die someday, as sure as it is that your body is racked and ruined by sin, if you are in Jesus Christ this morning, in a much greater way you are absolutely assured that you will reign in life through Jesus Christ, the greater one. And that righteousness is yours in a greater way than sin. That, folks, is the final and decisive reason why you can be absolutely assured of your eternal salvation. And that knowledge of assurance should create in you a boldness to live in a way that is contrary to the rest of this world. This world has no hold on you anymore. Your citizenship is in heaven. Amen? All right. Let's come celebrate that reality.